All right, we were just uh, playing some of the comments from Penticton Mayor John Vasilaki. He spoke on the program yesterday. Joining me now on the line is David Eby, Attorney General and Minister Responsible for Housing. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, It's quite a spat, I think is the word I keep hearing to describe the back and forth between you and the Mayor of Penticton. Uh, What's happening here? Well, I mean, at, at its core... Uh, This is about 42 people that are living in an emergency shelter in Penticton in the middle of a pandemic and whether or not they get to stay there past the end of March. Uh, BC Housing made an application uh, to extend the shelter use and uh, the mayor and council voted it down uh, six to nothing, which leaves me as the housing minister in a very difficult situation. We're fighting uh, encampment uh, growth and trying to uh, house folks who are living in encampments in Vancouver and Victoria. In Penticton, they have 160 homeless people uh, right now. And so those 40 folks, if, if they are added to the existing homeless population in Penticton, they're really flirting with a, uh, an encampment. And once an encampment gets established, the courts will not give you an injunction to remove folks if there's nowhere else to go. And uh, so I'd really... Um, 1,000% do not want another encampment. I don't want the people who are currently sheltered to become unhoused. And I've been working with Penticton now for a couple months, uh, trying to get more supportive housing opened. We have the money for it. We have the site for it. And Penticton has asked BC Housing to hold off while additional work is done assessing existing supportive housing in the city, um, and uh, which led to this shelter extension needing to happen. And, and uh, I'll be blunt, it's just a mess. And uh, the people who are suffering are the people who are homeless. Uh, the mayor yesterday said, uh, you know, they are not being heartless. They reluctantly agreed to this emergency shelter in the first place. They did so because it was temporary. Uh, he said there are no wraparound health services, that this particular shelter attracts more people to it, and that people who live, Penticton residents who live in that area, are afraid to go outside because of what's happening there. So what do you say to them? Well, you know, I agree with them about the need to close the shelter. It's a temporary shelter, and the way we were going to close it, the way we intended to close it, was by building supportive housing in Penticton. And the mayor will also know that I was meeting with his council to try to negotiate a way forward to get that housing built and get the folks out of the shelter. I um, I don't like uh, opening emergency shelters. I don't like expanding them. I like opening housing, and so that's where we're going, but um, obviously challenged by the approach that mayor and council have taken, and which necessitated the extension in the shelter, and uh, which, which they turned down. And so now I have two options. Uh, one is we have a provincial authority to uh, simply um, declare uh, that this is a provincially operated facility, and we don't have to follow Penticton's bylaws. Now, this is under the Interpretation Act, and it says that we, you know, it needs to be a provincial project, and we don't own the site, and we're not operating the site that it's being operated for us. So, uh, the advice, the best advice I have is that we can use our um, our statutory immunity power t- to do this. Uh, but if it's challenged by a neighbor, or if it's even challenged by Penticton Council, given their current attitude, um, then uh, a court may side with them and agree that uh, the province can't use that power here. In which case. We're left with 42 people moving outside, and, um, you know, if they're living outside, we're going to provide as much support to them as we can. We don't have a backup site. Uh, There's not another place. There's not a secret better shelter. There's not a secret better set of housing units in Penticton. There's 160 people who are homeless, um, and 40 more of them will be street homeless 
uh, if uh, if and when the shelter closes. Uh, and, and I get what you're saying. There's not a backup site. There's not another place, uh, another shelter or housing uh, for the people to go. Uh, but at the same time, when you say you don't want to see any more camps set up, and certainly we've seen issues in camps in other places, and today we're looking at two deaths at the Beacon Hill Park in the last couple of days. Uh, when you say that one of your uh, one of your uh, options might be to take tents and sleeping bags that BC Housing has and ship them up to Penticton. That, understandably, gets the mayor and gets the people there quite upset. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, when you close a shelter and you turf people out onto the street, I and and the tools that I have as provincial minister are limited to respond to that. Basically, at this stage, to tents because they've slowed down the supportive housing, so that's not there. They refuse to approve the shelter. They don't have a backup plan. Uh, we don't have a backup plan. We don't have another site. Uh, so where I, I don't know where they imagine these folks are going to go or that somehow this is my fault that these people continue to exist after the shelter uh, is closed. This is the state of, of life in Penticton. There's 160 people with nowhere to go. Uh, and I'm trying hard as housing minister to house them. I need a local government partner to do it as best as possible. But I don't need a local government partner to do it, which is uh, just the reality. And so I would much prefer to do it with, uh, in partnership with the city council to make sure it's located at the right site, that it has the right supports, that there, it has as much support as possible in the community. But, you know, when you say you're just going to throw 42 people who are currently sheltered outside with no other options, I don't know what other choice I have except to say we'll do the best we can to make sure the encampment that results from this will be well managed. Uh, to mitigate harm. And it is horrific. Uh, encampments are terrible. Uh, the, my heart uh, goes out to anyone who was a friend or family member of these people who are literally dying in encampments in Vancouver and Victoria. Uh, there are explosions, fires, assaults. It's uh, tragic and a disaster. We're spending millions to respond by the end of March in uh, Victoria, by the end of April in Vancouver. And to have a city council um, that says, literally the mayor hung up on me. <laughs> so it's like, what's the plan? I heard that. You know, your worship, and he literally hung up on me. And I, so my phone is still on. I am more than willing to engage with mayor and council there, but I will uh, do everything I can to prevent an encampment uh, for the folks who are in the shelter to prevent them from becoming even more homeless and living outside and to the folks in Penticton who live near the parks to prevent there from being an encampment or if there is one to, to try to manage it as well as we can while we uh, forge ahead with the supportive housing to get folks inside. And I get what you're saying. And I guess it's just when people hear you say, we've got this stockpile of tents and sleeping bags and we will ship them up there for an encampment in a park, uh, people think that, that that's the option putting being put out there. Uh, one of the things that the mayor said yesterday too was, again, that there are no wraparound services and that we're not getting to the root of the, the issues. Many of the the problems that people have, the 42 people that are living in this temporary shelter and others that that come by. Uh, Has there been any talk of of the province saying, if you extend this, uh, we'll give you 24-hour security, uh, we'll give you health supports, we'll do something so at least it's not the, the same situation that it is right now. You're not extending that. Yeah, actually, that was the very topic of our conversation with council before all of this happened. Uh, I had two meetings with them, and it came out of council's concern that BC Housing wasn't sharing enough information with them. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll meet with you as minister. We had two, uh, I thought, productive meetings where I agreed that we would do an, uh, uh, a third-party review of uh, what was happening in the buildings, what services were available, uh, what the police data was saying, what the health data was saying, what the impacts were on the people inside and outside of the building. 
um, in the area, and uh, and that we would look at that, and together uh, we would address any issues that that review identified. Um, so that's where we were going, and that proposal is in front of mayor and council right now. Um, so I'm happy to do that work. I think that work is critical to make sure that this housing is successful in local communities. But what I can't um, uh, uh, do is uh, have people um, imagine the solution. I can't imagine that the solution is to close the current shelter and render 42 people street homeless um, in, in order to improve services. I think we can actually do both. I think the shelter can continue to operate. I think we can address any gaps that are in the services in Penticton and, and address the concerns. And that's what we were doing uh, up until this vote happened uh, with very little debate and with no notice to me that, that it was going to go this way. How likely is it that you're going to step in and use your power as a provincial minister to override what Penticton Council has voted on? Oh, it's 100%. So I, I um, am moving ahead with the staff at BC Housing and our legal team to advise Penticton that we are going to um, continue operating the shelter using our um, our statutory immunity and that we will proceed with building the supportive housing um, using our statutory immunity um, because, uh, you know, I, I, if, <laughs> if they won't meet, they won't talk, they won't approve uh, the housing, um, we just have to do it. Is it a dangerous precedent? And I get we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about people being being shut out of shelter. But is it a dangerous precedent uh, having a provincial minister uh, and a provincial government step in and strip that power from a council? Yeah, it's thoroughly unpleasant. Um, And it's not um, our preferred approach. Uh, We had to do it in Maple Ridge. Uh, We uh, have been invited um, to consider doing that uh, in Victoria to expedite uh, the construction of housing. It's uh, something that I would not do and and will not do except in the most serious of circumstances. And the most serious of circumstances are a council that um, that, uh, attempts to close a shelter with no backup plan and, and won't approve further housing. Um, so we just can't have a situation of more encampments in the province. And, and happily, the vast majority of city councils across the province are enthusiastic about housing and they want housing and they want the support. I will note, and, and, and I, I'm not without empathy for the, the council in Penticton. COVID has been brutal in terms of uh, street disorder related issues, uh, services that help people make sure they take their meds, that they are able to stay in their housing, that they're uh, supported have been drastically cut back because of public health restrictions. The shelters that normally operate are operating at 50% capacity. City councils across the province are struggling with that. And so we have a COVID relief fund, $100 million that they can apply to respond to some of these major challenges because we know uh, it's a really difficult situation. And, and, and things that might on a busy street go unnoticed um, are very prominent uh, when someone's suffering and uh, from a mental health issue or profound addiction issue, and they're the only person on the downtown street because everybody's, uh, you know, at home because of public health restrictions. All right. And so, you know, these hidden issues are much more visible, and city councils are under a lot of pressure, and I get it, and so we're trying to support them as best we can. Minister, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Well, it is getting to be that time of year again. Spring officially just around the corner. That means there will be more farmers markets, people getting outside. But something could be missing from your local farmers market. Talking about the non-food vendors. And I have two guests joining me now. One is Ian Payton, the MLA for Delta South, also the BC Liberal critic for agriculture and food. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Uh, Laura Smith is also on the line, Executive Director of the Vancouver Farmers Markets. Laura, thanks for joining us as well. 
Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Oh, I want to start with Ian, if I could. You've sent out uh, some information about this, calling on changes that uh, the non-food vendors be brought back. Why do you think this is important? Well, Jill, as you know, uh, in my hometown of Ladner and Tawasson, we have a, a, a farmer's market in the uh, the summer months. And, um, you know, all over the province, we have small-scale producers of food products, whether it's... Um, uh, you know, vegetables or, you know, beef jerky or whatever. I mean, that's great. But they really depend these markets on the other artisans to help cover the cost of running these markets. And people don't necessarily just come to a market because they want to buy some carrots or some apples. They come for the fun of being able to see some really good BC home crafted products such as jewelry and artwork and, and leather works and different things that people make a lot in rural communities. So it's really important that we add back the artisan uh, part of farmers markets other than just food produce. Uh, Laura, I'll bring you in uh, because I, I seem to recall, and I'm hoping you can clarify that in the beginning of the pandemic, some of the the, sh- the shutdowns and the closures, uh, the non-food vendors were were taken away. I thought they had come back and they were allowed again. So where do things stand right now with it? Yeah, that's right, Jill. So when everything kind of ex- exploded a year ago, now I guess um, we were all um, farmers market organizers brought to food only. Those of us who are still operating Vancouver Farmers Markets does actually operate two winter markets, so we have some currently running. Um, And then though, non-food was brought back in June. So we operated our farmers markets under COVID protocols with food and non-food vendors from June through to November. And then in December, non-food was removed and we don't understand why. Were you given a reason? Not a clear one. It just it came up in the in the PHO under gatherings and events for episodic markets that we were only to have vendors who were selling food for human consumption, um, which was a critical blow. It was quite difficult because, of course, December is the time when people are looking for artisanal and craft products for holiday celebrations. Um, and we're actually looking at this as being another time-sensitive uh period for us because it's the flower season and we we have flower vendors who want to come to market i mean they would come this week if they could uh ian payton have you been given any explanation because it does seem a bit strange Uh, even this past weekend a a good friend of mine sent me a photo of some cider that she bought at her local farmer's market saying this is really great what is the difference somebody purchasing a cider uh, a bag of vegetables or a necklace yeah, absolutely, Jill. You can actually purchase alcohol at a farmer's market, but you can't purchase uh, a homemade belt or some flowers or something like that. So, you know, I sent a letter off to the uh, Minister of Agriculture saying, hey, it's the upcoming season. These people are trying to make a living. Some of them, this is how they make a living throughout B.C., is the artisan uh, items that they create and make at home or on their farm get taken to the farmer's markets. Now, what's the difference between people going to farmer's markets who have been very good about spacing out their booths, making sure everybody sticks to the protocols of of COVID-19? What's the difference between that going to the market and your next stop is at uh, Costco or Walmart or, or Save on Foods or something like that? So, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. We have to get back to some common sense here to make these markets viable. Uh, have you had any response from the agriculture minister? Uh, not yet. 
Not yet, Jill. Uh, Laura, has there been any concern as far as distancing and being able to put on farmers markets in safe ways and following COVID-19 protocol? So we haven't actually had issues. We've found that uh, farmers market folks have been quite compliant to the extent of, you know, lining up for blocks and blocks to be able to get in because we are controlling entrances and exits so that we can allow for physical distancing within the market space. So if you have an idea of a farmer's market as that kind of bustling, crowded zone where, you, where you're bumping shoulders with folks, that's not what happened in 2020 by any stretch. Um, nonetheless, uh, we have been able to keep the markets operating, and we've found that they've continued to be a critical food access point for folks looking for food and for producers bringing food um, for us in the, in the city of Vancouver. So even though it's spread out and not this big bustling affair, um, it's still been this viable point for our small businesses. I would imagine some people would probably even consider it safer in that this whole time we've been told to, that outside is safer, uh, you can go for a walk with people, uh, and uh, that its uh, transmission isn't nearly as much, uh, that people might even find it uh, a bit more comforting to shop in an open-air scenario rather than inside, uh, say, a tiny grocery store. We do. We definitely hear from people that they feel safer at the farmer's market than they do elsewhere. Um, I do I do want to put out, though, you know, this kind of rule that we have around non-food is one that's perplexing and confusing for us. But generally speaking, um, we have had a really good relationship with the province. And BC has actually been an example for, um, for how to really work well between the Ministry of Agriculture and Health to to have it. So farmers markets have been able to operate through this time and adjust and adapt. And we're just confused by this specific thing on non-food. Otherwise, we've been really impressed with what we've been able to do um, in keeping markets safe and operating last year and and through the winter season as well. Uh, Ian Payton, I know you said you'd reached out to the agriculture critic. Uh, If this is a public health order, though, would this not be Bonnie Henry's decision on whether or not to change it? Uh, well, Jill, we, we sent a letter to the Ministry of Agriculture and to the Agriculture Minister, but I believe we copied it uh, to uh, Adrian Dix, the, uh, the Health Minister. So, you know, what we're, what we're counting on is with most of these letters is you send it to the Minister of Agriculture, but hopefully she will, you know, call a, a meeting quickly with her Ministry of Health and with the Provincial Health Office people and try and come to a, a a rapid decision on this to get uh, artisans back into farmers' markets. And, uh, Laura, what does it mean if this doesn't change? I know you kind of mentioned this off the top. What does this mean for vendors, uh, particularly going into this busy season, if things don't change? I mean, for vendors, for small businesses themselves, I mean, anybody who is operating a non-food business, it's, it's incredibly damaging and challenging for them. For flower farmers right now, spring is the time when they really... I mean, they planted the blooms <laughs> months ago, thinking that, of course, this wouldn't be an issue. So they're they're in a really critical time period right now. Um, but also, actually, we've we've raised that for farmers markets. We know that uh, a percentage of our markets are actually subsidized by being able to include. I think, as as Minister Payton mentioned, the the artisans and the non food vendors. So so for us, we also look at the viability of the farmers markets as being contingent on actually having non-food vendors included in our vendor mix so that we can continue to operate them and bring the food into the communities and support the producers who, you know, are an essential service right now.
All right. Well, we'll keep watching it to see what happens with that. Uh, Ian Payton, just before I let you go, you mentioned off the top uh, the markets in Ladner Tawasson. When are people going to have a new crossing to get to and from those markets? <laughs> uh, you know, Jill, I think I'm actually supposed to be on a show later on this afternoon on, on your uh, radio station to chat about that. So, Perfect. Uh, yeah, very frustrating. <laughs> As you know, um, the trucking industry and the people of uh, Delta and Ladner Tawasson, um, yeah, we're still waiting to find out uh, uh, what's going to happen with the replacement of the George Massey Tunnel. So stay tuned. I think I'll be back on this afternoon around 5 o'clock. All right. Sounds good. Thanks to both of you so much for joining us to talk about this. Yeah, thanks again, Thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Just a reminder, today's briefing on COVID-19 in this province is happening at 2 o'clock, so in about one hour from now, and we will carry that live for you right here on CKNW. I want to talk now a little bit about an infographic that was making the rounds yesterday and certainly was creating a lot of buzz, a lot of people looking at it and going through the numbers. And this was put out by Fraser Health, and it shows how one positive case of COVID-19 through various different channels led to to almost 300 people who were in self-isolation at home. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Dr. Elizabeth Brodkin, Vice President, Population Health and Chief Medical Health Officer. Dr. Brodkin, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, can you kind of walk us through how this unfolded in that it started at a pub trivia night where there, were, there was one person who had tested positive. Do things unravel from there because proper protocols weren't followed? Um, Yes, this is an infographic that is based on real-world events, and it started with um, a trivia night at a pub um, where there was an infected person present, and as a result of that evening, um, 24 uh, 24 customers and four staff members became infected. And the infection spread from there. There, Two of the uh, people who had attended the trivia night worked in a daycare, And as a result, the infection spread um, to the daycare where an additional 27 people became infected with COVID and another 15 of of close contacts of people at the daycare also ended up getting infected. There were a number of workplace exposures um, that resulted uh, from people who had attended the pub trivia night, but most of those did not actually go on to result in secondary cases. But there was another event where someone who had been at the pub trivia night um, who worked in a school um, went to school, and as a result of that exposure, an entire class had to be self-isolated for a number of days. So in total, um, almost 300 people were exposed, and about 80 people became infected. Uh, 80 people. Sorry, that was my next question. Then how many people actually uh, became sick or, or tested positive? So it's 80 people from this one case? Yeah, 80 or 81 people became infected as a result of that single um, that single event. Do we know how many hospitalizations it led to or if there were any? No, there were no hospitalizations. All right. So no hospitalizations, but talking about a scenario with, again, almost 300 people that ended up in some kind of self-isolation. That's correct. Um, when we take that back then to the original trivia night, because one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that we have been able to, for the most part, keep uh, pubs, restaurants, uh, places where people can dine open with those prov- uh, COVID uh, protocols. Uh, so do we know, did, did it start with somebody not wearing a mask, was somebody too close to somebody else, or do we know how, how kind of that ball got rolling in the first place? 
Yes, I, I think it actually started from a significant um, misunderstanding about what constitutes an event. So as you know, events are currently not allowed under the public health orders. You can certainly go to a restaurant or a pub, um, but the idea is that you're at a table with people from your household bubble and not people who are not part of your bubble, that you enjoy your evening um, with your household, um, but not beyond that. And this was an event that, um, you know, that that did not uh, line up with the public health orders and where there were people sitting together at tables who were not part of the same household bubbles. Uh, Was it one person, though, that was going from table to table that caused that, that level of spread? No, the, the the staff uh, were going from table to table, of course, as staff do, and, and they were masked. But for the most part, people were, were remaining at their tables. However, they were not in their household bubbles. Uh, which which raises another point, and people have been talking about this since that rule, that recommendation came out, that if you are going to go to a restaurant or pub, you stay within your household. But people have been seeing uh, people not following that recommendation throughout this. So was there something particularly different about this case? No, I think that this is just an example of how insidious the, the COVID-19 virus is, that what seems like an innocent event or minor violations of the, the public health recommendations and orders can actually turn into something very significant. And so when we're talking about the fact that this started then, is it is it fair to say then it was one person? Do we know for sure it was one person at the pub trivia night? If you're talking about people being at tables with with friends or with groups rather than their household, could it not have been a number of people? As far as we can tell, um, it was started with a single person. Uh, one of the other, uh, in the infographic, it says that uh, on one of the ones from, from the initial uh, exposure, it says eight workplace exposures from people at the pub trivia night who went to work sick. Uh, includes two industrial sites, two offices, a restaurant and a store. Uh, what do you say to that in that that's one of the messages that has been clear throughout this entire pandemic is if you have any symptoms, don't go to work. And I think that this just reinforces the importance of the public health measures. While we are all waiting for vaccine and we're waiting for um, you know, a, a high level of vaccination so we can get to something that looks like herd immunity, it's really important that we continue to follow those basic public, public health recommendations. That includes not going to work when you're sick, going and getting tested if you're sick, keeping your hands clean, social distancing, wearing a mask, etc. We, you know, these, these seem like small things, but they are actually the crux of what is going to keep us safe until we can get most of the population vaccinated. Uh, one of the other arms of the infographic starts with the two daycare staff who went to work after they attended the pub trivia night. That resulted in transmission to others in the daycare. Uh, 27 people tested positive as a result of that transmission in the daycare. Uh, do, you th- do people who work in settings like that, settings where there are children or there are going to be people uh, that are very close together, they're not always masked, there's not a mandate to be masked. Do, do you think they ha- there's more of an onus on people to be more careful in and maybe thinking twice about going to, uh, maybe they didn't know they were going to a pub trivia night and it kind of happened while they were there. But but do people who know they are the next day going to a work environment like that need to have more, to, to show more uh, restraint, I guess, in going to those other events? I think the onus is on all of us to ensure that we're doing everything we can to keep our workplaces safe. But but you're right, there are certain workplaces that are particularly sensitive and high risk, and, and healthcare is one of them, and, and daycares are another. And it's really important that people work who work in those settings follow public health measures to the best of their ability so that the people that they're providing care for at their place of work remain safe. 
did you get the, the response? I mean, the, the, I think the whole point of this was to show, wow, this is this is what can happen from one one case and one person who has COVID-19 and, and exposes others. Uh, do you think the message was received or the message you were uh, the Fraser Health was trying to put out there was made in this? Well, it certainly made an impression, and 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 I hope that um, it, you know it has helped to deliver a message, which is that um, even uh, what appear to be minor violations and and small um, deviations from from the public health measures actually can have a huge effect. And while we're waiting for the um, the vaccine to roll out and and most of our population to be immunized, it's critically important that we continue to follow the measures. All right, Dr. Elizabeth Broadkin, thanks so much for your time today to talk about this. Appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Have a good afternoon. Ah, well, if you were a fan of Friends, you know that song. You probably sang along with that song. It wasn't even the theme song, but it's one that people remember from that series that lasted several years. And the reason we are talking about this today is because a Friends reunion special. It has been confirmed they will start filming next month. But what does this do to the legacy of this sitcom? For more on that... Here is our show contributor, John Jang. There used to be a time where this theme song was the signal to let you know it's time to settle into your couch for half an hour. The ever-popular Friends that ran for 10 seasons between 1994 and 2004 will begin filming their long-awaited reunion special next month in Los Angeles. Here's David Trimmer, who played Ross Geller in the show, confirming as much on Andy Cohen Live yesterday. By the way, what's the update on the Friends reunion? Have you guys oh, shot happening. it yet? We're um, actually in a little over a month. I'm heading out to L.A., so... Uh, Finally. I mean, we figured out a I mean, way, honestly. I think, to film it safely. Um, and um, right. you know, there's going to be a portion of it that we film outside because of, you know, for safety right. protocols. That's yeah. great. And is Ellen hosting that? No. She's not. Do you know? Can you say who is? You know what? I don't know if I can, actually. So oh, okay. I, All right. I, that's a great we'll question. We'll leave it I there. Yeah. should have found that out. Um, and I right. apologize. Yeah. All right. Yeah, okay. um, I can tell you it's uh, not well, Ellen, um, and um, it's not Billy Crystal. I could tell you who it's not, but it okay, takes a while, probably. <laughs> okay, it's not Ellen. It's not. Is it someone who has Wait appeared on Friends you, before? Andy, is it you? Oh my God! I wish it was. The Friends special will reunite original cast members, including Rachel, Monica, Phoebe, Chandler, and yes, Joey Tribbiani. How you doing? <laughs> According to The Hollywood Reporter, all of the actors are set to earn more than double their former per-episode fee, which puts their pay range in the vicinity of $2.5 million U.S. The release date for the special hasn't been announced just yet, but considering the original series is no longer available on Netflix Canada, it can't come soon enough. Now, in case you forgot how the show wrapped up in 2004, in the two-part series finale, all of the six friends essentially went their separate ways. Ross and Rachel moved in together after Rachel turned down a job opportunity in Paris at the last minute in the name of love. Monica and Chandler also moved into a brand new home, needing the extra space as the couple recently became parents to twins Erica and Jack. Joey ends up keeping his new pets a chick and a duckling, and Phoebe is married to Mike. With all of this in mind, 
The show signed off almost 20 years ago, and assuming this reunion follows that in real time, Monica and Chandler's twins will be around 17 years of age, and the average age of each main character will be approximately 53. Now, to clarify, this isn't a brand new series or any kind of rebooting of the show. This is a one-off special that essentially serves the fans of the show. But could this become a case of be careful what you wish for? Let's bring in Ben Dooley. He is the producer for The Jill Bennett Show and a Friends superfan. Ben, thank you for giving us some time here today. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you, John. Now, first of all, just give us your reaction to the news that this Friends special will start filming next month. Well, I mean, my, my relationship with, with Friends is, is weird because, you know, the, the show launched in, in 1994, and I'm a 96 baby, so I wasn't even born uh, when, when Friends was, you know, at its peak popularity. But uh, so, so my, uh, my experience with Friends didn't really start until, uh, until it, it uh, showed up on Netflix. But once it showed up on Netflix, you know, I, I was immediately hooked. And I'm just so, so excited to, to you know, see uh, all, these, all these people uh, reunite after close to 20 years. You know, we saw it earlier with uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh, reunion special, and that was was really good. So I'm I'm incredibly interested to see, you know, what what they do here. I, I understand that it's not going to be a scripted. It'll be pretty uh, similar to that to that special. So I'm just uh, really really interested to see what they do. Aren't you worried that the special could ruin a really good ending? A lot of great TV shows struggle to find that perfect finish, and I think most people are pretty happy with the way the original series wrapped up. You know what? No, not really. I I would be more concerned, uh, you know, if they were doing a sequel, uh, because then you can, you know, and have the the show end on a, on a bad note. But what, but I what I understand this to me is just uh, the the group of friends. Uh, reuniting uh, to uh, to talk about uh, about the show and i i think that that's really interesting just to just to hear about how how everything played out on the show that was so popular for for 10 years and finally ben our host jill bennett provided a rather bold take earlier this afternoon when she said that in her opinion rachel should have chosen mark her former colleague at bloomingdales or Joey Tribbiani, but definitely not Ross. What do you think of that? You, you know, John, I don't often like to challenge Jill because she's such a great uh, reporter and host, and and usually she knows what she's talking about. So so I don't often challenge her, but but on this one, I I just can't believe that she would she would have this take. Uh, Rachel and Ross are are meant to be together obviously they they had their their bumps along along the way but it's it's so obvious that, that these two uh were meant to be together and and the only thing that she could have said that would have been more ridiculous in my opinion is to say that Rachel should have chosen uh, Gunther Things are heating up over here. Producers are going after hosts, and contributors are interviewing producers. This is the kind of buzz that a Friends reunion update is having here, and certainly around the world. One thing's for sure, this Friends reunion special promises it will not be boring. 
All right. And thanks to uh, our show contributor, John Jang. I stand by my position. I think Ross was a jerk and I think he was the wrong choice. Rachel deserved a whole lot better. 